to the Weird Warriors podcast. On uh, this podcast, we'll be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I am Max. Yes, he is. And I am Rich. Right on. And on this episode, we're going to be going on a special mission, a redeployment, as it were, taking a look at Weird War Tales number two. But from what year, Rich? 1997. That's right. So, uh, without any further ado, we're going to have Rich get to the retroactive history section of the podcast. Yes! We all use countless phrases over the course of the day that we don't know the origins of. We don't even think about it. While creating the Facebook teaser for issue 22, that's easy for me to say, I used the term basket case which was literally what Lieutenant Kogan ended up being when he pushed his luck too far with the enchanted talisman he wore. This got the wheels turning about the origin of the phrase. So I did a little research. Incredibly, Kogan's situation is the literal origin of the term, coming from World War I British usage. It indicated a soldier that had lost both arms and legs that needed to be carried around in a basket. Wow. Okay, then. Never going to forget that. And neither are any of you. Intel Report, brought to you by Zap Action Disney Models by MPC. No, not really. Um, <laughs> for Max, and in honor of one of these stories enclosed herein, Jonah Hex, Riders of the Worm and Such, a DC Vertigo five-issue miniseries from 1995, Written by Joe Lansdale, penciled by Tim Truman, and inked by Sam Glansman. Join the hideously scarred Confederate veteran as he encounters a ranch full of singing cowboys and an ancient race of man-eating grubs from beneath the earth. Check the album for a page from Sam's house. The three of them also worked on 1994's Two Gun Mojo and 1999's Shadows West. All are phenomenal reads that were got me initially into the character. I swear a Jonah Hex special mission will happen at some point. Title details, as put out last time, this title belongs to the DC Vertigo imprint from 1997, and so there's adult language and graphic scenes, especially in the last story here. This is issue number two of a four-issue run, plus two one-shots bringing up the rear at some point. Right on. Well, uh, before we dive fully into what's in store for us here on this special mission, we'll take a short podcast promo break. And when we get back, it's on for real. Ah, it's so good to be on a break from my hectic, hectic work schedule to be free of, well, okay, I like to hit my clients, but it's so nice to just get out of the office and stretch my legs and go for a walk around the city. What a beautiful day. Ah, it's lovely. Oh, excuse me, mate. Have you, have you got any uh, DC events? Have you got any, have you got any invasion? Uh, have you got any uh, uh, Genesis? I'm, just... I'm very so sorry. I know I... Wait, Paul? Paul, is that you? Oh, oh, Dr. Herfin thing. Oh, hello. My gosh, Paul, what has happened to you? Why are you in this gutter here? Oh, I may have had a bit of a relapse and got back on the DC events a bit too hard. Ah, oh, multiple expletives in whatever European country I come from. Good Lord, oh, this means one thing. We have to get you back. Back in the office. 
for more DC OCD. Oh, excellent. Yes, DC OCD is back, looking at every single DC event from where we dropped off last time. Uh, I don't know where that was, but we're continuing, moving on into the recent years of DC events. So uh, look for it on the Waiting for Doom feed, wherever you see good podcasts and ours. Just when I thought I was out, he drags me back in. <laughs> hoo <Hoo-ha. laughs> And we are back. So, without any further, further ado, Rich is going to hit you with the cover detail for Weird War Tales number two from 1997. Price, $2.50. Art by Michael William Kaluta. The red Weird War Tales logo that Max despises is in the upper right corner. Under a partly cloudy sky, a ground crewman stands on an oil drum and works on the nose art of the B-24J Liberator Dragonfly. The green dragon's red tooth-filled mouth opens around the bombardier's position in the nose, and the eye is coyly placed over a small fuselage window. Coming over the top of the fuselage from the far side, a mechanical creature made of aircraft parts spears at the crewman. Is it curiosity or hostility? You decide. Cover date, July 1997, on sale May 21st, 1997. Killjoy, abso freaking none. Diving, diving, diving right into the CNC. Kaluta should be put in prison for murder. He absolutely killed this cover. No lie. This is top 10 of all time for me. I'd hang this on my wall and my wife would be okay with it. The detail work is astounding. Dings in the fuel drum the ground crewman is standing on. Rivets in the fuselage. Ventilation holes in the machine gun barrels. The hand-built elevated cart the paints are kept on. And then there's the material the mechanical creature is made of. An MO feed belt for a neck. A propeller for wings. Flight goggles for eyes. A nose wheel for a chin. Twin 50 caliber machine guns as a stinger, and I don't know what the yellow oxygen tanks are for. I've mentioned the great uncle of mine that flew B-17s during the war. He had a chance to fly B-24s on ferry runs after the war and hated them. They were flying dump trucks in comparison. A joke at the time was the B-24 was the crate the B-17 came in. But that slab-sided fuselage lent itself to some outstanding nose art. I truly lament that there is no corresponding story inside. Based on the cover alone, issue two is picking up right where issue one left off. Yeah, uh, Kaluta is an artist's artist, and this cover makes it easy to see why. Everything, as you mentioned, is naturalistic, but not so photorealistic as to seem robotic or dull. The crewman's body language is perfect. The setup of his workspace and tools just looks and feels right, as does everything else in the image. The sense of consistency and perfectly stylized realism adds to the surreal presence of the dragonfly creature climbing over the plane to peer at the crewman. It's, it's as though the spirit of the fuselage art is being brought to life assembled into a physical presence with whatever parts are available to do so. So yeah, agreed. This is a Weird War Tales cover, and one heck of a comic book cover by 
any standards. Kaluta, yeah, just didn't do enough of, of this kind of work, in my opinion. Like, there should be as many Kaluta covers as there are Glenn Fabry covers out there, or Alex Ross, <laughs> just, just for our own enjoyment. So, you know, just selfish motivation. With uh, the cover out of the way, we're going to get into a really interesting first story here, and we're going to go about it in what I think is a pretty interesting way here. Um, I'll tell you to start with, the title is Looking Good, Feeling Great. It's 10 pages long. It's script and art by David Lloyd. Now, Rich and I are going to do this synopsis together because... There's a dual narrative going on here, and that will become clear as we go on of, about how that's being executed in the story. But I feel like um, we should probably explain it a little bit at the top here. So <laughs> there's the main narrative concerning a guy named Danny Coogan going through his day here. There's also the narrative of a TV that's been left on where there's an exercise show going on, like think an 80s aerobics type show going on with a really peppy hostess leading the exercises. So of course, Rich is going to be your hostess and I'm going to be your disaffected killing machine bad guy in the story here. So a little bit of a spoiler there, but hey, I couldn't resist. So the synopsis for looking good, feeling great goes a little something like this. Danny Coogan is doing push-ups in his room, a room filled with military-themed books, models, posters, and shooting awards. His mother is ironing in the kitchen with a TV on, which can be heard upstairs. It's a lovely sunny day here on Ocean Beach, but remember, it's not where you are, but how you feel that's important. Lose it with Lori, and you too can feel on top of the world, because that's where you deserve to be. As he leaves, carrying two bags, Danny's mother asks if he's going to stay for lunch. He remarks simply that he has a job to do. The most important part of any exercise regimen is to warm up first. Get those muscles ready for work with an easy exercise like this. Be kind to yourself before you have to get tough. Coogan fires a 45 on a shooting range and gets all hits on the head and chest of the target. Finished quickly, he leaves and heads to a military recruitment center. There's the same poster on their window of an AH-64 Apache helicopter as there was on the wall in his room. Well now, that's eased you into action. Let's move on. Okay, feet together, head up straight, stretch your arms as far as they'll go. Two recruiters see Coogan wearing a black t-shirt and sunglasses, and they sigh. Tom Craze, doesn't he ever give up? When you do this, you can feel every muscle. You can feel the blood coursing through your veins. You know you're alive. Coogan walks out of the recruiting center holding an M16, staring at the sky. The center's walls are bullet riddled, and the windows are smashed. Okay, now it's time to step up the pace. We're really going to wake up those fat busters with this one. As calls start to come into the police, Coogan walks down the street and enters a hardware store. There are three men inside, and the employee laughs. If this is a stick-up, you better come back later. Ain't sold better than tin tacks all morning. Legs apart and reach for the sky. And down we go. Straighten up, take a deep breath, and down we go again. Coogan walks out of the hardware store. 
leaving shot up walls and tanks leaking their contents behind. First responders and news crews are now scrambling. He walks into a barber shop that has five men inside. The one having his hair cut sneers. Well, if it ain't Nancy Coogan, them firecrackers down the block, Nancy, you've been shooting stray cats again? Put your hands on your hips for this one. Legs apart and twist to the left. Now, twist to the right. An old man sitting outside watches the police cars blow by. He's reading a newspaper with the headline, Crime on the Streets. Democrats demand tougher gun control. You know, I get lots of letters from people saying, Lori, how can I be like you? I'm too old. I'm too fat. I can never be as fit and healthy as you. Bull, you can. You can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. That's right. You can be what you want to be. No one can stop you. A policeman outside the barbershop radios in. We got three dead and two critical here. Some folks are saying it was Danny Coogan. We're sending a car out to his place now. Of course, you have to make sacrifices. You have to cut out all those little things you know are bad for you. Coogan returns home. His mother had made flapjacks for him, knowing he'd want some later. Why? Why did you do that? He raises his 45 and shoots her from behind. The muzzle flash turns into a blazing desert sun. An Apache flies low over the sand. It's pilot talking to the police. Pleased to be of service. We heard what happened to our boys. We've seen smoke from Coogan's house, but haven't spotted his truck yet. Okay, we're coming to the final segment of the show. This last exercise is a tough one, so I hope you're good and ready. It's worth the effort. Remember, you're on your way to complete fitness. On your way at last. On your way to what you deserve. A police car sees Coogan's truck heading for the military base and pursues. Armed soldiers line up at the perimeter fence. Now we call these mule kicks. Right leg first. And one, and two, and three, and four, and five, and six, and seven, and eight. And nine, and ten, and now the left. The sheriff briefs the press. Latest information is that there are nine fatalities, ten injured. The Apache has joined the chase. Coogan's truck stops on the road when he sees the reception at the base waiting for him. Well, you've worked really hard this morning. Now it's time to wind down. You know, there's only one way to achieve your dreams. You've got to set your sights as high as they'll go. Reach for the stars. Coogan gets out of his truck as policemen run up behind him with weapons drawn. He watches the Apache hover low in front of him. If you have faith, you'll catch one. It's yours if you want it. You can be what you want to be. Looking good. Feeling great. As the rotor wash swirls around him, Coogan throws back his head and spreads his arms wide as if he's ready to accept judgment. A radio crackles. He's all yours, Flyboy. Bye now. All right, there you have it. End scene and first story. Rich has a little bit of killjoy here. Yeah, unless Coogan was blazing away at the helicopter, there's no way the crew would be given the green light to blow him away. We all know he'd be taken into custody by the cops that are right there and be given his day in court. I also think that cops are a little too close behind him for the gunship to shoot safely. Yeah, you want the Apache to dust him. I think a lot of us are secretly upset when these mass shooters are taken alive. But that's not how we do things here. 
Indeed, it is not. So that aside, we're going to do some comments and commendations on this one. And I'll say this was not a weird war story at all, and in the most tragic way possible. It's incredibly well told, though, in my opinion. And was really fun to do the synopsis for, by the way. Yeah, that was a great idea. It was Rich's idea, people. With the entire creative team working in perfect sync with each other, the juxtaposing of the positive self-actualization chatter of the exercise class with the violent downward spiral of Danny Coogan works wonderfully to contrast the you-can-do-whatever-you-put-your-mind-to attitude of the media and pop culture with the precarious mental health health issues exacerbated by those who fail to achieve that one thing they've been reaching for. So 1997 was a long time ago, but this story could be happening right now and every day coming up this week and for the rest of the decade. Page five, panel three, the newspaper reads, Democrats demand tougher gun control. It's now 25 years later and gun violence in this country has only gotten much Much worse. Sticking to the work presented on the pages here, I found it remarkable that at no point is any person actually shown on panel getting shot. To me, that symbolized how empty the actions were for Coogan. Like, it's how he isn't even feeling what he's doing. As if to him, it's not even happening. It's not working for him. The problem he has isn't going away. I also like the contrast not just between the exercise class's narration and Coogan's actions, but the stark difference in color palette and body language and facial expressions of the aerobicizers and the grim, sarcastic, mocking, and panicked figures in the darkly shaded tones of Coogan's world. I found this to be a powerful story, if not weird at all, and again, in the worst way possible. Yeah, it, it, it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to portray the story and not make it confusing. I, I personally think this worked like a dream. Unfortunately, as you said, this is as timely a story as any we've covered throughout the course of the show. When I was in school, we only had fire drills. Now we have active shooter drills as well. The only news story in my life that infuriated me as much as 9-11 was the massacre at the elementary school at Sandy Hook. And it's gotten to the point where you start wondering when the next mass casualty event is going to happen. Sandy Hook happened when I was on my domestic deployment. My base was relatively nearby and we had to call our alpha roster or our alert roster to make sure no one in the unit was affected. Can't believe that's approaching 10 years. Hell ain't half hot enough for that guy. Anyway, I liked the poster tie-in between Coogan's room and the recruiter's office and the fact that it was an Apache that smoked him. My favorite panels are page two, panel three, the horizontal line surrounding the 45 Coogan is firing helps portray the action. And the aforementioned panels three through six of the muzzle flash slash desert sun fade in on page six. Lloyd's art also reminds me of the stylings of Klaus Jansen in several spots. Yeah, I got to say, I didn't think of that comparison until I read your part in the script. And I'm not really familiar with David Lloyd at all. Uh, It's not a name that jumps out at me. And of course, I didn't look him up yet. But uh, this was an incredibly well done execution of the comic book medium. So damn good. So 
considering what our next full length story will be, I'm also going to do the synopsis for the little three pager that comes after that really fun to uh, at least at least to read here on the podcast for you story. This next story is a three pager, as I said, called Mightier with script and art by Peter Cooper. So it's another solo act. And the synopsis is as follows. This is a completely silent story done in what appears to be colored pencils as far as the art style goes. A hand holding a fountain pen signs a declaration of war. In the second panel, the pen turns into a missile. In the next two panels, the hand vanishes and the document turns into a city into which the missile screams. A nuclear detonation is the centerpiece on page two, with lightning bolts coming out of the cloud, forming panels that show people dying in the blast. The city is flattened on the bottom half of the page. On page three, our finale here, the city burns and the viewer zooms in on black and white panels of a dying mother and child reaching for each other. Blood trickles from the child's head onto another colored panel, forming the ink of the president's fountain pen as he signs a declaration of war and hands it to his staff. So if you were following that, you can tell there was no killjoy necessary. So I'm going to let Rich kick off the CNC. The layouts of this story are truly eye-catching. The top four panels on page one form the path of the plunging missile into the city on panel five. And the blood on the black and white panels on page three reminds me of the little girl in the red dress in Schindler's List. That was from 1993. The more I looked at the details, the more I liked it. This was solid. Heck yeah. Here we have yet another unfortunately timeless tale. Timely even, considering that we're recording this during Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine in 2022. The nuclear missile in this three-pager may be seen as more a symbol of the Cold War era, but they're still out there, these missiles, and they could still be sent out to blow us all to kingdom come with the stroke of a pen, push of a button, opening of a football suitcase or what have you. Have a nice day, folks. Cooper is a masterful cartoonist, and every bit of this three-pager is executed perfectly and creatively. The transformation of the pen into a missile, the ravages of the nuclear explosion, as we mentioned, the, the lightning bolts coming out of the explosion, forming panels on the page, and the grim delight of those individuals assembled in the final panels. It, it's just a masterclass in how to do comic book cartooning and a message that tells us to make war no more indeed. And so with two powerful stories out of the way, Rich is going to take you to the final story in the issue, which is it, it just steals the show from even those first two spoiler alert. So here you go. The elopement seven pages script by Joe Lansdale art by the immortal Sam Glansman. Bill Instein is a captured Union soldier who is shoved into the crowded compound of the Confederate prison camp at Andersonville, Georgia. As he gazes at the stream that flows through the camp, he's warned not to drink it by another captive, Carl Fuller. It's full of disease. Reb officers use it as latrine. Use rainwater or go thirsty is the advice. 
As Carl shows Bill around, he points out a hut at the top of a small knoll, four prisoners outside of it. One of the prisoners is bald-headed and shirtless and towers over the other three. Them is the do as they please. They ain't on no one's side except their own. They take from the rest of us if we don't stop them. Carl brings Bill to his encampment and invites him to set up his stuff nearby. Two of Carl's friends, Drayton Smith and Jack Slater, warn Bill about leaving the rations he brought with him in sight. If and we was the do-as-you-pleases, we'd swoop down your head like a chicken on a sparrow. You don't want to wake up dead. Best keep that stuff stashed. Bill shares his rations with the other three, and they make a pact. All for one, and one for all, if the do-as-you-pleases came around. But hunger, thirst, and loneliness are constant companions. When asked one night, Bill reveals he was a watchsmith and that he made clockwork toys. There's something about watches and time, some kind of power in them. One month later, a windstorm blows Bill's tent away. Carl calls out for him to take cover in his tent, but soon that tent is also blown away. The two of them tumble into a hidden tunnel, and Carl's jacket is torn off. Bill is shocked to discover that Carl's a woman. I wanted excitement. I cut my hair, called myself Carl, and enlisted as a drummer boy. No one knows but you. And now you know about the tunnel. The three of them had been digging the tunnel, and in a couple of months, they'll reach the woods. Bill promises to keep her secret safe. If the camp knew there was a woman inside. As they repair their tents, Carl confesses her real name is Carol and asks Bill if he wants in on the tunnel. He wants in, all right, as he kisses and mounts her. He wants in, bad. The next day, there are four of them working on the tunnel. And after the others leave, the two of them are intimate again. Carol gives Bill a small glass bottle she'd been wearing around her neck by a cord ever since he'd known her. She'd wished upon a star months ago and had wished her soul into the bottle. It made her feel free of the camp. And as a gesture of love, she gives her soul to him. After they escape, they'll get back north and marry, open a clockworth shop, and have lots of babies. That afternoon, as they cook a rat over the fire for dinner, Bill pulls out his ration bag that still has some food in it. Carol tries to warn him, but the do-as-we-pleases see it. They come over to steal the rations and mercilessly tear through the floor. Bill is stunned by a club to the head as Drayton and Jack die under the pummeling they receive. Carol has no chance against the large, bald-headed prisoner who rams a knife into her chest. Sure was a nice dream, Carol whispers as she dies. The renegades leave with the rations and the rat. Bill buries the three of them that night and vows revenge. For a month, he slaves on the machine of their vengeance as his health disintegrates. Finally, it was time. He digs up Carol's rotted body on a dark, rainy night and places her skull and bones on a large clockwork mechanism, which he then protects with a wooden barrel. Placing the bottle containing her soul around her neck, he welcomes her back. He's coughing and his uniform is in tatters. Everything's going to be fine. I give you back your soul. I'm too weak to help. You're on your own. Go, my love. Under a full moon, Carol walks across the camp, carrying a pitchfork and an improvised staff covered with sharp blades. Inside the hut, something makes Baldy stir in his bed. Too late. Carol slams the staff across the row of beds, killing two of his cohorts. 
She rams the pitchfork into Baldy's face and wrenches it sideways, carrying away one eye and his jaw. A second strike disembowels him. Carol then leaves the hut, entrails tangled in the pitchfork, dragging on the ground behind her. Bill is dead when she returns. She drags him into the escape tunnel, and a tear runs out of one of her empty eye sockets as she looks at him. She kicks out one of the tunnel supports, and earth rains down to the top of them. Killjoy was here, history minute. The graveyard at Andersonville was outside the prison compound, so I don't know how Bill would have been able to dig Carol up. And yeah, I could make this one a history hour if Max let me, so I'll do my best to keep this one reined in. One, Andersonville gets all the bad pub for Civil War prison camps, but yeah, Union prison camps were no better. I've been to some sites of Confederate POW cemeteries up north. The Rebs called the camp at Elmira, New York, Hellmira. I've also been to Andersonville, part of the National Park Service and the site of the National Prisoner of War Museum. Coming from one that's been to the cemeteries at Arlington and Normandy, the one at Andersonville is particularly chilling. The modern part of the cemetery is the classic, well-spaced Veterans Administration one, but the Civil War era part has headstones that mark bodies that were obviously buried shoulder to shoulder. Built to hold 9,000 prisoners at its height, the camp, officially called Camp Sumter, held well over three times that number. Over 13,000 died there in the one year it operated from exposure, malnutrition, disease, wounds, and other causes. 3,000 in August of 1864 alone at an average rate of one every 11 minutes. Camp Commander Henry Wirtz was the only Confederate official to be tried, convicted, and executed for war crimes after the war. Two, the Andersonville Raiders were a group of Union prisoners that preyed on their fellow prisoners. Membership was thought to range between 50 and 500 kind of a wide arc, the better fed and well-equipped men would steal whatever they wanted from their malnourished and ill brethren, often resulting in death for those victims. A prisoner police force called the Regulators tried, with limited success, to keep them in check. On June 29, 1864, a victim of the Raiders made a complaint to the Confederate guards. This caught the interest of Wurtz, who gave the Regulators permission to round up the offenders and hold them for trial. Lesser punishments were handed out, although some died running the gauntlet. But in the end, six chieftains were found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. While some were contrite, two were defiant to the very end, July 11th, 1864. The six men were buried separately away from the other prisoners. Again, check the album. The raiders faded away after the executions. No surprise, I suppose. Three. It is estimated that over 1,000 women signed up on both sides and fought as men by cutting their hair and binding their chests. Yeah. I, once again, uh, history, you know, uh, clockwork golems aside, a bit weirder and, and scarier than the fiction here. So uh, comments and commendations for this epic story, I'll kick it off and say, okay, I'll kick it off with a nitpick and say, I did not buy that Carl was a young man for one second. It was weird because I actually just assumed that she was female and my brain just accepted that instead of triggering the, hey, she shouldn't be there, alarms in my head. I love Glansman. 
obviously people who listen to the show know that, but he wasn't really doing a great job of making Carl look androgynous here. Uh, look at the final panel on page three for a good example. I mean, come on. It, it made the reveal an even stranger moment to me than it was supposed to be, as my mind then did a retrospective reconstruction of that part of the narrative in real time. So that aside, the rest of the story elements were, of course, fan freaking Fantastic. Lansdale's writing is as brutal and grim as one would expect, and Glansman's illustration and storytelling talents are on full display on these pages. Man never held back. In particular, his habit of using floating panels as part of his page designs is put to great use here, keeping the story flowing from one moment to the next, making each page a really interesting object to look at all by itself. It's really one of my favorite Glansman techniques, and few people are even close to as good at it as he is. Also, this is truly a weird war tale and people thank goodness rich is going to fill the album with pictures if you don't have this issue because the the creepy resurrected carol golem at the end words aren't going to do it justice you have to see what sam does with this thing so i'll pass the baton to rich here yeah I mean, i've been wanting to do this one ever since i saw the concept art at sam's house last year photos in the album you know lansdale could have written a story where jonah hex is visiting this camp right the panel layouts throughout are great. Smaller ones blending into larger ones to tell the story. Page five, panel six, the detail of the prison compound, the smoke rising from dozens of fires. Page eight, panel four, the crazed look on Bill's face as he builds the machine. And panel six and seven, the shading and vertical lines representing rain as Bill digs Carol up. Three thumbs up. Sam was a master. Yeah, like I said, as powerful as those first two stories were, and I give them very high marks, this one just, it, it's its incredible to read. It's a beauty to behold. It's disturbing as all get out. So we end on a really high note story-wise here. So let's see how we do with the advertisements in this issue. Such as they are. Remember the ad thin issue I mentioned last time? Well, it still is. And the two ads we picked last time are still in it. Nothing at all cries out to me. So I'll just peruse the upcoming comics list for this month, May 1997. Garth Ennis is well represented with Pride and Joy, number one of four. Preacher, number 27. Unknown Soldier, number four of four. And coming next month, Preacher Special. The good old boys. Needless to say, I have them all. I'll stick to the coming attractions as well for the same reasons, but also because I was having a lot of fun reading DC books at this time. Among those titles coming up to be published in July 1997 were JLA number seven by Morrison, you know, Grant Morrison, Howard Porter, and so on, in which our heroes fought 
angels from heaven. So Morrison always took it easy on, on the plots, you know. The reboot Legion was cruising along with Legion of Superheroes number 94 and Legionnaires number 50. So I was loving that. Starman number 32 and Shade number four were coming out by James Robinson, Tony Harris, and all those guys. Uh, incredibly good spinoff series from the otherwise not so great Zero Hour event, just like the reboot Legion, along with Superboy number 41 and Sovereign 7 number 24. DC snags X-Men mastermind Chris Claremont away from Marvel Comics. This was sure to be the title to watch in the 90s, right? Right? <sighs> well, <laughs> I, I bought the first several issues anyway, but I didn't go all the way up to number 24. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> there's no letters page or any side blurb or anything in this issue, like an editorial or anything like that. So we're going to jump on down to uh, our segment that we like to call Got Any Last Words? And I'll say, as I've kind of been saying all along here, this was an excellent comic book. But for the most part, I'd have to say on a technicality, it wasn't necessarily a great issue of Weird War Tales. That being said... There were stories in the original series that had no weird elements, Moon as the Murderer and so forth, that are some of our best remembered stories. So I'm hesitant to dock this issue too much, if even at all, for that. Also, the Lansdale Glansman story just casts a halo of awesome over the whole damn thing. So me likey, no points taken off. This is a perfect comic book, in my opinion. Gotta say, issue two couldn't quite keep pace with issue one for the much the same reasons. You know, I mean, like, it, you know, issue one, all weird war. Issue two, eh, not so much. First two stories were great, but they weren't weird either. And it could easily have been placed in any anthology war comic. Of course, the elopement ran away and hid in the cookie jar, like I strongly suspected it would, even before I opened up this issue. I hope issue three rebounds the miniseries and with Grant Morrison writing one of the stories, I expect it will. Hey, second Grant Morrison mention of this episode. So I'm doing pretty good over here. <laughs> I am one of those people. I am a huge Grant Morrison fan. So I, I, you guys have probably already figured that out. So <laughs> the issue is done. Now we're going to step out of 1997 and into 2022, but from a little bit ago. So like our, our uh, mascot, the time traveling rat, we're jumping around a bit here to the dead letter office. And this is where we talk about social media likes and shares and stuff like that. And this time we're focusing on episode 25 of the show, which covered Weird War Tales number 22. And at the top, I'm going to remind you all of the Weird Warriors podcast PX on redbubble.com. That's redbubble.com. Search for Weird Warriors Podcast, and you'll find our awesome logo created by Bill Walco of the Hero Business. And you can put that logo on anything you damn well please. And, and, and then you can enjoy it, and you can feel superior to others who have not done so, which would be everybody so far on this planet but Rich and I. So redbubble.com, Weird Warriors Podcast. Go get some stuff, all right? And uh, believe me, people, it if we make any money, it's going to go to the upcoming server fees for the year to store all this incredible content that you're enjoying every other week or so. So over on Twitter, where uh, we are at Weird War Pod, and I am at Max Reads Comics over there, 
we got likes and stuff like that and, 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 and little hearts or whatever they call them on Twitter from Darren Murphy, Gavin Rizza, FP Glasgow, the Earth 2 podcast, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast from our buddy Ranger Gord, uh, Wayne Burroughs, Jeremy Floyd, The Telltale Mind, Comics in the Golden Age, Dave Steele from the Earth 2 podcast, uh, Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious, The Checkered Pass podcast, shout out to the Checkered Chums at Go Go Check Pod, Generation Hicks, Mr. Paul Hicks of the Waiting for Doom podcast, and uh, Dial F for Flanger, which Rich might be familiar with having been on. Just yeah, exactly. There we go. We, we, we're invading people. We're, we're infecting other podcasts as we speak, progressively so. Jeffrey Brown also stopped by to say hey. And over on Facebook, home of the Weird Warriors podcast Facebook page and Rich's awesome episode albums that he builds for you guys, among other things. We got visits from Dan Brown, Kurt Matilla, Ranger Gord, Herschel Memis, David Steele, Lee Sullivan, Tim DeForest, Luke Ed, Billy D, Billy Dunleavy himself, Brendan Schlitt. We got a visit from me. We got uh, Bill Mooney, good buddy of ours, and Daniel Rapoli. Now, over on the Gmail address, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. We got emails from Mike Stewart of the Save for Half podcast, who weighed in on the subject of how we should cover the APO Weird War Tales letters pages. And he let us know that he and the Save for Half gang will be playing our promo on episode 40 of their show, which at the time of this recording, I had just listened to. It's a great show anyway, made even better by the presence of our new promo. I mean, what wouldn't be? Jason Zeller and Billy D also wrote in to tell us what they thought of Weird War Tales number two. It was very much appreciated. And if you want to hear back from us in a more detailed fashion, write in because I respond to every one of these emails. And one of these days, I'm going to figure out how to get Rich to do it too. So we'll, we'll keep you updated on that process, people. <laughs> so Rich is going to tell you about some Apple podcast slash iTunes reviews here. We got another five-star review, people. Thanks too. Reviews entirely. Devot <laughs> 73, Bronze Age DC Anthology Goodness. This is an excellent deep dive into a classic DC comics anthology book that, as well as examining the stories, also gives real world military context. The host's genuine enthusiasm shines through. Strong recommend for fans of Bronze Age comics and for fans of the old war comics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I say thank you too. And because that is spelled David with a D-A-V-A-D 73, I suspect this is our buddy David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast. So tip of the cap to those guys over and uh, over across the pond there, giving us some some five-star love. And I got to remember to do that for them too, because the Earth 2 podcast is a huge favorite of mine. And at some point, Rich and I will be appearing on that in a little cameo uh, where they're doing a kind of a special episode, like, like a radio show read of an old Batman comic. I'll keep you all updated on Twitter as to when I hear that's finally coming together. COVID kind of interrupted the, uh, the group recording over there. So with all that out of the way, we're going to have Rich come in and hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales number 26, because... You know, could it be Satan? 
horribly egregious ad placement Orlando's Klansman gaffe. What else do you have to do? Mow the lawn? Bah! Have the kid do it. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I can't wait for that, man. Like this, a, a Glansman gaff. I have to find out what it is. <laughs> so <laughs> this good people has been a special mission on the Weird Warriors podcast. We are the Weird Warriors. We are the Batlam Bros. I am Max. He is rich. We are once again the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war. No more. Thank you.